Hey, do you guys remember that in 2020 that we ran out of deck boards? Does anybody remember that? Nobody remembers that. Does anybody remember that? One person and me back there. A couple people. If you didn't know, we ran out of deck boards in 2020. And do you know why? It wasn't that long ago. Ray, do you know? Come on, Ray. It's because we're all stuck at home, right? Everybody's stuck at home. We had nothing to do. We had all this vacation money sitting around and stimulus checks coming in. And so what do we do with it? We built bigger decks. And so in 2020, prices on lumber and everything skyrocketed because we all went out and built bigger decks. We all built these things that we've been putting off for a long time so we can enjoy the space in our backyard. In 2020, we built a bunch of decks. Nobody traveled. We all worked from home. We didn't go anywhere. So we just hung out in the back. But not Amy and I. Because we accidentally became porch people in 2020. See, in 2020, we went up the sidewalk for the very first time before the shutdown in the spring to our now home. And so we walked up to this beautiful, big, old house that had just incredible charm and character. And immediately we noticed two things walking up the sidewalk. One, we just noticed how manicured and nicely it was connected and just that there was this big wraparound porch that we had not seen in the listing pictures. And two, we noticed an incredibly small yard right next to a very, very busy street. So I knew this was going to be an issue for my wife. So upon seeing all this, I said, Amy, you know what? It doesn't matter. This is beautiful. But, you know, probably most of the time outside, we'll just spend it in the backyard. So we go inside and we walked from room to room and just become more and more in love with it every time we walk around and stuff. And finally, though, we walk out the back door and we walk out the back door to discover that our backyard is about 15 feet of concrete and then a drainage ditch. And so what I said to my wife is, Amy, guess what? We get to spend all of our outside time in the front yard. And that's how we became accidentally porch people. After prayer and consideration and pros and cons list, we decided that this was the right house for us, even if it didn't have the deck and the yard that we had originally been hoping for. And we became porch people, and we love it. We absolutely love it. We've had a couple near-death, uh, near-life experiences. We had to run and grab a kid, run throw him out of the road. But besides that, it's been great. Okay, no complaints. We really love that porch life. We sit there, and in 2020, when everything shut down, that was where I had most of my meetings. When I was still the youth pastor here, that's where we did our Zoom meetings for all of our Zoom meets. Liz remembers the times I'd have to mute as a semi would come by. Our kids wave at all of the dog walkers and know all the dogs by name. We wave at the cars as they drive by and tell the semi-trunks to hunk their horns. Our neighbors come and stop and just wave at us and they cock. This is where we've closed the night out with many a friend and many a time on a summer night. It's just been incredibly, incredibly enjoyable. But we didn't mean to do it. It just happened to do it. But what we did is we started taking up residents on our front porch, which is something that is kind of abnormal or not as normal now, but was culturally the norm a few, just a few, about 100 years ago. See, in the 1800s, this porch culture was commonplace in America, right? Right? Right. Yeah, we all know that. Between the 1800s and early 1900s, America was defined as a porch culture. See, the backyard was seen as a place to get away from. The backyard 
in this time period was the place where you'd work. You'd go out and you'd have to go and weed the vegetable patch, weed the vegetable garden. Anybody have a mother that ever made them go weed the vegetables? Ray. Okay, yeah. Me too, Ray. That's why I hate gardening, okay? Because my mom made me do it all my life. And that's where the place where you would get away from the stink and the smell. That's where the outhouse was because there was no indoor plumbing. And it was seen as this place of the trash heap and the outhouse and the workplace. And so everybody would not try to escape in the evening to the backyard. They go to the front porch. The front porch was the place that you would go and you would have entertainment for the day. That was the place where you would have people walking by and you would call to them and you would have them come up and you would greet each other and talk to each other and neighbors would just end the day by talking to each other. But this passed very quickly. Sharon Ferraro says this, she writes for The Atlantic, she says, when radios and later televisions in the living room and automobiles in the driveway came to whisk us away for other attainments, the front porch disappeared from house plans to be replaced by patios and decks in the privacy of the backyard. According to home magazines in the 1930s and 1940s, the best way to modernize your home was to tear off the old-fashioned porch and add a simple modern stoop. America has continued this trend, not just literally, just building bigger decks and building bigger patios, but, but figuratively in our relationships as well. We've moved from this public safe zone, this gray zone, where you would go, the porch symbolizes this place in the middle, from the public to your private home, where you're still on your own property, but you can still interact with people. We've moved from that place to more of an isolated culture. We've moved from the porch to the patio, and so have we in our relationships. Pastor Josh is talking about community again. Yes, I am, and we're all so excited about it. Darlene. Okay, today we're starting a short mini-series, just a three-week series, very different than our almost three-month study on Abraham. And it's a very short study moving into our September small groups. And it's called very simply a menu, a cup, and a table. And for the next couple of weeks, we're going to be talking about a menu, a cup, and a table, all in relation to community. Now, this is not our first study on community. We did a study on this uh, a few years ago. I think in 21 we did it on, in February. But we took a very different approach to it. In that study, we looked at the, the psychology, psychology and the historical uh, value of community in our culture. We looked at what hyper-individualism was and tribalism and then the radical teachings on community that Jesus was teaching. This series is going to be much more geared around the practical ways of jumping into community and how it looks in our culture. But today I want to take just a little bit of time to kind of recap and put us all in the same place when it comes to this idea of community at COTR, how it works, our model for it, and why we are persevering and pushing for community so strong in our church culture. This series is more of a practical look at how it functions here and the benefits that come from living a life in community. Before we do that, though, I just want to briefly recap a few key contributing factors that have aided in the development of a more secluded or more isolated life. A development in more pseudo-communities. Communities that are not necessarily the biblical life-giving relationships that we see in scripture, but more of a false community or community that takes its place. 
more of a distraction than a real biblical community. And the very first one is this, a focus on individualism. See, the thing is, it's like this. It's like eating an oatmeal cream pie for breakfast. Something I definitely didn't do today. Wink, wink. But we all know it's not good for us. We all know it's wrong, but it's kind of filling, tastes kind of good, and we're willing to do it to get by, right? We've kind of treated community like that in our culture today. It looks kind of good, it's enticing, but it's not the real sustaining, nutritious relationships that God intended for you to have. Because community isn't easy. It doesn't happen naturally, and it won't organically pop up in your life. You have to choose community. Community is a choice. Individualism. Collectively, America shifted in the 1900s from a strong group focus to more of an individual, individualistic focus. There's this idea the primary objective, primary objective in life is to focus on succeeding, to make it, and to make something of yourself. This idea was that the better name you had, the higher station in life, the more money you had, the more successful you are, the happier you will be. That cultural mode of thinking in its extreme devalues the need of the group. And it makes the self and the perceived needs of the self the supreme objective of life. Do you. Do what you need. If, you're, if the culture all says this, but you feel this is the truth or this is the valuable thing, you pursue the things that you need because what you matter most. Now, there's a balance between all of that. You can swing to the strong group culture, and there's a negative side of that where it's oppressive and domineering. But in our culture, we've swung the way, way other side to go into hyper-individualism where the, ourselves, the individual, is supreme above every other relationship in our life. And it creates an isolation because naturally, if you have push yourself up, you have to put other people down. Or value yourself most, you value other people less. And in biblical community, you are valuing the group. You are valuing the health of the group. And you may even make decisions or choices that benefit the group but cause you to take a loss. So one is a focus on individualism. Two is technology. With the era of the iPhone, we've become the most connected but emotionally isolated we've ever been in humanity. Technology gives us a false sense of connection to each other. Social media gives us a false sense of belonging. Streaming services allow us to spend our leisure time alone instead of in a group. We now have an outlet for our boredom. Technology allows us to disengage from the present moment and move into a private entertainment that puts the community at risk. You know, it used to be said that true love was letting your spouse control the remote control. But now that's not even an option because we can just sit in a room or sit in our bedrooms and shut the door and watch whatever we want on our phone and stream whatever we want. And so even our entertainment options are becoming individual to ourselves. It used to be where God would use boredom, I think, to push you to be with people. How many people ever got with another uh, group of people or just tried to find something to do because you were really bored? A couple people in here. All right, I see you. Thank you. Yeah, there's so many times. Most of the time growing up, I did things because not I was really interested in it or really liked it, but because I was bored. What's the group doing? 
We're going to go see that movie. I hate dramas, but I'll go see it. Okay, I don't really like, uh, you know, camp, going down the river in a canoe, but I'll do it if you're all going to do it. I don't like line dancing, but you're all going to be there. I'll do it. Can I tell you the primary way I spent a lot of my weekends growing up was going to ballroom dancing? How cool does that make this homeschooler look? <laughs> pretty, pretty cool. But can I tell you that every Tuesday night and every Saturday night, 30 to 40 of my friends would go out dancing. It would be 30 or 40 kids, 15, 16, 17-year-olds, and then a lot of 70 and 80-year-olds. But the 30 of us would take up a couple tables, and we would dance the night away. And because we're all homeschooled, we got discount classes because you couldn't get anybody to come in and take classes during the day. And it was a great time. Do you think I went to my mom and said, Mom, I really want to learn how to ballroom dance? I never did that in a day of my life. But I was bored. I didn't have a cell phone. I didn't have internet. And I would rather go and ballroom dance on the weekends than sit in my room by myself. Boredom pushes us into community. But with a phone in our pocket and internet streaming to our homes and every streaming option available to you that's cheaper than cable, we no longer need people to keep us entertained. I can distract myself. I can numb myself to keep me away from engaging in relationships. Relationships are messy. Relationships are hard. Relationships require something from me. But to zone out on my phone or to zone out on my TV or to zone out in whatever way that you distract yourself, it's so much easier, we think. But it's the oatmeal cream pie all over again. It's the unhealthy choice that we think is going to nourish us, the thing that we really want, but in the end it doesn't give us the nutrients that our souls were designed to receive. Social, uh, hyper-individualism, technology, and finally social changes. The family dynamic has changed. We're more distracted and more busy than we have ever, ever been. There's more dual-income families and single-family homes, more time spent getting takeout and having meals in your bedroom than sitting around the table and eating together. And when we are together, there's more times, again, going back to technology, that we're buried in our phones, checking an email from work, or being pushed to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing, the next baseball practice or the next tournament or the next drama club or the next trip to Florida or whatever it is. We're constantly in a rush because our society, again, tells us the people that sleep in don't get the worm, that if you don't get up and go get after it, you're never going to be anything. Our society tells us that the people that push themselves to the most that they have, to the very extreme, to take a day off, you're worthless and valueless. That's what our culture tells us. But community takes intentional space, intentional time off. Often you are giving more than you are receiving. And in a individualistic focused culture that doesn't compute that doesn't make sense and so our social norms have changed all of these things I've mentioned have positive attributes to them but combined and taken out of balance it's created a cultural moment of isolation social anxiety and a lack of ability to connect and have genuine relationship with those people around us we're so distracted and numbed that we're into the relational deficits. 
And those deficits are poisoning our souls. We live in a moment in community where the world looks a lot more like, our community looks a lot more like followers on our account online, our cycling, our CrossFit gym buddies, the people that echo our own opinions or thoughts. We've exited the diverse and the real and the messy and the meaningful relationships that come when you genuinely share your life with other people as God intended. And so I want to recap community just really quickly. I've given you all the negative reasons, but here's a few reasons why you were made for community. And the very first one is that God lives and exists in community. The very first small group was God, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Do you ever think about that? There's a whole group that just existed and invites you into it. God lives in community. God created you to have community and relationship with you. And he was designed you to not be alone. God lives in community. And then next, we live in community because we were created for it. God's going about in Genesis and he's creating all of these things. He creates sun and light and animals and fish and the days and the seasons and stars and moon and stars. Everything. And every time he creates something, he sits back, dusts off his hands and he says, oh, that was good. Jesus, did you see what I did there? Starfish. I took the star and I put it in the sea and I made it a fish. Pretty cool, right? And he does all this stuff and he goes back and forth, back and forth. And he says, everything is so cool and good except when he gets to man. And he says, Adam, why are you alone? Before sin had entered the heart of man. Before we fell. Before there was a disconnect from a holy God. As close to a perfect creation as you can get, there was something that was not good. Adam had a, a relational deficit. You know, when you get into church, and it's especially for the dating age, you really pushed that there's a space in you that can only be filled by God. And that's true. There is a, a void inside of you, a meaningfulness and a sustaining that can only be filled by God. But in Genesis chapter 2, we see that there's another void, another uh, need in your life that can only be filled by human relationships. It's not good that man should be alone. And so God chooses to create us in a way that needs relationship. God lives in relationship. We were created for togetherness or to community. And this is a very important one, is that to know God, to experience God, means to live in community. 1 John 4, 19-20 says, We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother or sister, he's a liar. For the person who does not love his brother or sister, whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he's not seen. We have this command from him, the one who loves God must also love his brother and sister. The first and primary place that you can experience God's love is in connection and community to other people around you. And when you isolate yourself or take yourself away from that or decide to not pursue biblical community or genuine true relationships, you're actually cutting yourself off from a way to experience God's love. Are you with me today? All right. The first and primary place that we can experience the love of the Father is in relationship to the people 
around us. He created us and intentionally designed us that when we experience God, it's expressed in our love to the people around us. If you love God, then you'll love the people next to you. And lastly, Jesus teaches that we should be on community. I've said this before, and this is just kind of a refresh on this. I'm not going to go super strong on this point. But the call to discipleship, when Jesus was walking along and said, Peter, follow me. All these people just follow me. Judas, follow me. Even Judas. It was a simultaneous call, not just to discipleship, but to community. Immediately as they started following the master, following the way of Jesus, they found that another 11 guys had shown up. And so the call to follow Jesus was not just a call to discipleship of one-on-one mentorship. It was a call to communal living. To answer the call of Jesus was also to answer the call of community. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says it this way, very simply, in one sentence. He says, Christianity means community through Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ. No Christian community is more or less than this. Christianity is community. Community is the place where we give and receive God's love. Community is the place where we can be known before we become something. Or on your way of developing and becoming like Jesus. Community is the force that creates health and life in us as we participate and interact and live in it. And lastly, if I haven't convinced you enough yet or sold you enough on this, this idea, there are tremendous benefits when you live in community. Acts 2 is kind of that staple text that we go to time and time and time again as we talk about the new church being created and how it functioned and how it lived. In Acts 2, we see all these different benefits and things that happen when people live in intentional community. God's presence manifests itself as miraculous signs and wonders. The needs, the physical needs of people were met as they gathered together. The way of Jesus was affirmed and remembered through communion. They enjoy each other's company and fellowship. They supported each other in hardship when one was suffering. In community, your calling is called out and affirmed. Gene Peterson talks about how he's not himself by himself. The in the in place, in community, in the group, when you give it out to a biblical people around you who are seeking and following God, they can actually see something in you that you didn't see in yourself. They can affirm something in you that you didn't even think you could do. You know, that's why Tuesday night's prayer with Pastor Norma have been so powerful. I think more powerful, and it was good biblical teaching, but more powerful than her teaching was that we had about 50 people show up every time. And of those 50 people, I don't know the exact percentage, but I'd say a lot of them had never tried to access the prophetic gifts of the Spirit. But Pastor Norma was very, very intentional to take time to say, come up here and practice, and you do it. And I bet that there are tons of people that came to those prayer nights that experienced moving, the Holy Spirit moving through them in the prophetic gift they never thought they could before. Until she looked at them and said in the crowd and said, here, come get the mic and come and give a prophetic word. I was a little intimidated to go up. But you know what? God's never left me or made me a fool. He shows up when I can't do it myself, and he puts me in a place to rely on him. But community is the thing that calls those things out in you. Again, we live in a culture that says you have to be strong enough to do it. 
But God again and again and again in Scripture is using the weakest tribe, the weakest person, all the things that we can't do in ourselves to bring glory through us to his name. I will use the weakness. I will use the things you didn't think you'd do. I would use all the bad things in your life. I will turn them into situations that bring glory to my name. Your weakness is my power. And community is the place where you can go, and we're going to get into this later, so I'm not going to spend too much time here, but community is the place that those things can be called out in you. Those things can be practiced in a safe, controlled setting. Community is the place that you can access the calling that you didn't even know that you had. Discipleship and spiritual formation happens in the community. John Michael Talbot says it this way, when we hear the call to follow Jesus as his disciples, we do so as a personal response to Christ. But as soon as we follow him, we discover that a bunch of other people have also showed up. The initial response to the call of Christ is most personal and intimate, but the call to keep on going is unquestionably communal. It involves a community of disciples called the church or the gathering. The call of Jesus is a call to community. Church, we spent time on this before, and today is just a brief recap, but I want to just spend a little bit of the rest of our time. This is maybe a little more lecture or class than sermon, biblical expository sermon today. I just want to be honest with you and give you an honest evaluation of where our church is at in the pursuit of community. Before I do that, I just want to commend you as a church. You know, this is the first season of Church on the Rock that we haven't had to scrape and to scrap and to work so hard. Because you know what? Brian, who first led this church and planted this church, and a a group of four other families came here and took a mortgage on a house in Bartlett and pooled together, and they worked so hard. And then people like you felt the call of God in their lives and they showed up and they gave their money and they gave their time. And through 22 years, we're still a young adolescent church, but in 22 years, we have a building. We have acres of land in Chicagoland, which is crazy and unheard of. We have a van, which is amazing. When I was a youth pastor, I was so thankful to have a van. We have a pavilion and soccer fields and a finished basement, and a finished kitchen. We have always been a church that's been a project or a hill or a pioneering church, and pioneering spirits is what you had. You showed up and you worked hard and you gave sacrificially and you worked and through God, glory to God, we have the land. But in this next season of Church on the Rock, the call is not to pioneer but to settle the land we have. It's time to dig deep. It's time to look left and right. It's time to grow wide, not in our waist, but in our relationships. It's time to spread out and to bring people in and to get to know the people that we show up together with every single Sunday. The call is to meet them on a Monday through Saturday and not just wait for the Sunday two-hour gathering. The time right now is that God has provided the land, provided the resources, provided everything we need. Now it's time to settle. To be a place of ministry to the community around us. To know each other. 
as we're becoming more and more like Jesus. This next season, this is why I harp on it so much and we talk about it so much, is because this is the direction that our church is growing into, is to become a community-minded and community-focused church. Because pioneering spirits came in and they led us to the place we are. And now it's our opportunity and calling is to lead us to the next place. Not the better place, not the even greater place, just the next step and season in the projection of the life of this church. The next natural thing that we need to grow into, which is knowing the people around us communally and knowing the people that sit left and right of us. This last season of Church on the Rock, we looked at our spring groups and we took a poll and we just kind of crunched all the numbers and it came out to be that about 20% of our church is in small groups. And that's good for a lot of churches and that's okay. And that doesn't include Youth on the Rock. It doesn't include all the volunteers that serve on a Sunday, which is a way to be involved in community. But it's not where I believe we're supposed to be. See, that, that 20% also calculates, you know, when my small groups gets together, over half of us as kids, we are overrun by children. And so what is that number when it actually dilutes all the way down to the adults? They're intentionally gathering for a community. Our heart is that that number continues to increase and to grow. You are incredibly loving people. You are incredibly giving people. And we've been a people that have always been a people of the next mountain to conquer. But I really believe that we've entered the promised land, the promised season, and we have the land, we have the van, we have the pavilion, we have everything we need. It's now time to develop the relationships around us. And that's what I'm praying. That's what Amy and I are praying. That's what we pray for on Tuesday nights at prayer meetings. Our leadership team and our staff, we keep talking about it, is pushing events, pushing uh, opportunities, pushing things that will grow relationships around us. Going to Pingree Grove and going to Hampshire, going walking the parade is putting our name and putting us in proximity next to people. People aren't just going to show up to church. They'll show up when you know them and they're invited when they know you outside of your Sunday best, when they know you just in the normal day, the normal structure of your life, when your neighbors know that you're not just a Sunday Christian, but that's also a place of life for you, and you invite them intentionally. When you have a conversation with your friends, and they want to know, I was just talking to chat about this, he was talking to a lady downstairs, and she said, how are you so wise? He said, oh, guess what, I'm not wise, I'm an idiot but I know a God who is wise, and let me talk to you about him. Relationships open the door to evangelism. We're going to talk about that later too. Church, we have a front door. And time and time and time again, the overwhelming compliment that we get to our church is that we are an incredibly loving, welcoming family. That before you even sit down, you've been greeted three times on your way out. You're handed invite cards and connection stations. But we also have a back door. Every church does, every organization does. And it's the people that slip through the cracks or walk out and they never come back. Our job as a church is to shut that back door. And the way we do that is not by charismatic presences on the stage. It's not by a really, really good band or fancy lights that we're having trouble with today. It's by the relationships that you connect left and right of you. 
When you're connected to the person left and right of you, it doesn't matter if the church is going through a new pastor hunt. It doesn't matter if the band's not playing the songs you want. It doesn't matter if this isn't happening as you want it because we live in a materialistic culture that says go to church so you can get what you want out of it. And when that need isn't met, quit church and go to the next church. We live in a church hopping culture. We want to be a church planting culture. And that happens in community. Relationships ground us. Not false pseudo-relationships to the stage, but real relationships in small numbers where it's enough that you can actually hear somebody else talk. This is a terrible form of community. You literally all are looking at people's, the backs of their heads and listening to one person talk. That's not, a, that's, that's not community. That's not conversation. How well do you think it would go with my wife if every time she talked, I just let her look at the back of my head and never talk to her? It doesn't go well. Community requires getting face to face in our houses, with each other, eating meals, sharing a cup, talking to each other, listening to each other. It's a choice. I have more stuff that I want to talk to you about than I have time. We're going to breeze through this next section really quick. Church, this is gross steps number two stuff, but I just want to, again, bring us all on the same platform. This is how community and our small group model works at Church in the Rock. We've been working on this for a couple of years trying to figure out what's the best flow for our church and how it works is really simple. In January, we start with a six-week prayer initiative where we either focus on gathering together here or we focus to gather on prayer pockets throughout our community. So we have six weeks there. And then March through May, you have 12 weeks that we do a spring small groups. And then in the fall through September through November, we do another 12 weeks with another fall small groups. That gives us our summer times off to do fun things like outreaches and parades and bonfire nights and all that kind of fun stuff. And it gives us our holidays in November and December off to be able to spend that time intentionally with our family. That's the small group model that we've started implementing in our church. But this is something I really want you to know is that if you're intimidated by small groups, sometimes people think, well, I don't know the Bible enough to be able to lead a small group. I just want to break down the three ways, the three types of people we're looking for to lead a small group. And it can, it's three different people. One is admin. Maybe you hate public speaking. To be up here, you'd rather go hold a frog, Patty. <laughs> but you are great at administration. You can send out emails. You can organize a text thread. You can, you can connect with people and tell them, you, here, I printed this out. Here's the teaching subject. And so if you're good at admin, we're looking for you. If you are good at facilitating a conversation and you can fill the awkward silences of getting to know somebody, we're looking for facilitators. Wes, we're looking for chatters, talkers, somebody that could talk to uh, a dead horse, Wes. That's who I'm looking for, Wesley. And lastly, maybe that's not you. You're not good at admin. You're not good at leading a discussion, but you can keep a clean house. You've been blessed with the finances. I hear a couple of people laughing. You can be blessed with the finances to have a warm 
welcoming place, a big couch or a big table, and you know how to light a candle and bake some cookies. We're looking for people that can develop an atmosphere where people feel comfortable to gather. And maybe you just bring to the table, literally you bring the table, but you come to the table and you can provide a host home for people to gather in. If you fit any of those and feel God calling to you, we're looking for you in this next season of small groups. And here's the altar call today, guys, and we're going to be closing with this. The prayer team is always available to you up here. But the altar call today is very simple. You don't even have to get out of your seats if you don't feel led to or desire to. We're in a series right now called Menu, Cup, and Table. And the very simple theology or basics of a menu is that you have limited resources, whether it's stomach space or wallet space, you have limited resources. And so when you go to a restaurant and you grab a menu and you look at all of the options and you designate how you're going to spend those resources. I can buy a cheap entree and get dessert and a meal. I want to go all in and get the steak and fries. You can designate how you're going to spend your resources. You only have so much time, only have so much money, only have so much of yourself to be able to spend in a week. Community is a choice. 